It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. In an insightful online column, commentator Melanie Furvut writes that those working with President Ramaphosa are tasked with protecting him and his office by giving good advice and heading off mistakes before they become public. By the way, Favut was previously a politician, an ambassador, and the director of UNICEF in Ireland. On the advice to the president observation, she goes on to say that recent blunders show this isn't happening. So I guess that begs the question, how can we hope to get things right in the country? How can we fix things if the wrong people are in the wrong jobs, giving poor guidance or none at all? A very warm welcome. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and our guests in coming weeks will be asked how we can make things better. How do we improve matters? How, in the shorter space of time, can we become a competitive and successful nation? Melanie Favut, a very warm welcome to Fix SA. And before we get to the bigger problem, let me suggest to you that often a fix starts with small things like getting the right advice. It was an interesting piece of writing. What was the main point that you were trying to make? Hi, Jeremy. Thank you. Well, I mean, I am a big Ramaphosa fan, let me say that. Um, I've known him since the mid-90s or early 90s. And yeah, I really like him. I think he's a man of integrity. You know, I've never been concerned that he deliberately did something with Pala Pala. I think things went wrong, but I don't think he would have knowingly been part of that. And I really like his commitment and passion towards the country. But there have been so many instances where I've literally like thrown my hands into the air of in despair and think, how did that happen? And in fact, that column I wrote the day before the drama with the ICC, you know, where he said we are withdrawing and then we're not withdrawing. And that was just a super example. It came out the day that that happened. And it frustrates me because he should be able to rely on people around him. He can't run the country. No president can do that without good advisors, without good support staff. And it just seems to me that they are dropping too many balls um, and too many mistakes are being made. You know, the Pala Pala report going to the Concord being thrown out there on a procedural issue. And one can continue with one example after the other. And it's just frustrating and unnecessary. Um, there are real issues to deal with and that we should deal with, not having to deal with blunders because support staff are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. We're going to get to the real issues in just a moment. And I, I don't want this conversation to be a referendum on President Ramaphosa. So let's get back to the advisors very quickly, though. In any political dynamic, what should advisors to government be doing and to perhaps stretch your point a little bit, how important are they in terms of good governance? Well, they are very important, especially when it comes to the executive and particularly when it comes to the president. Like I just said, a president have only so many hours a day like all of us, and it's a gigantic job. So any president needs good people around him or her to anticipate problems, to know what is going on, to engage with the media effectively, and then when mistakes are made, to quickly catch them and correct them. And 
if you don't have that, it's very difficult to run a successful ministry and particularly also a successful presidency. So they are incredibly important. Good presidents are made by good support staff and advisors. I would also suggest that it's a two-way relationship and one that is built on trust. So it's also incumbent upon leaders to use or not use that advice when it comes. That is true. That is absolutely true. And also, of course, to appoint good advisors. And there are certainly, there's been suggestions that the president at times have trusted the wrong advice. You know, I would certainly think the advice he was given um, and choose to follow around keeping quiet around parla parla was not very good advice and, and has proven to be the wrong advice. So, you know, there is obviously a two-way um, dynamic here. Also, the president firstly needs to appoint the right people and then he or she chooses who they trust and then whether they follow that advice. So it can't all be the blame on the advisors, etc. It's also, of course, on, on the person in charge people that they trust, but I'm also imagining that people that they feel comfortable about disagreeing with. So important. Um, we've had examples in the past with presidents which their advisors and their staff talk to, they refer to them as Jesus. And, you know, one doesn't argue with Jesus, of course. So I think it is really, really crucial that ministers, presidents appoint people which A, challenges them, and B, are really good, so are almost as good as they are, because it's only then that there would be a dynamic which would ensure that it's not just a bunch of yes-sayers around the president and that they will actually say, uh, I wouldn't go down that route, and I think that would be a really big mistake, or really don't do this. You know, anybody who loves West Wing... I think all political junkies. We know that's kind of a good sort of fictional account of how advisors should work around a president. And my fear is that we haven't had that in South Africa since most probably the Mandela days. Now let's look at the issue more broadly if we can. And uh, I was momentarily distracted, by the way, because I was reliving former episodes of the West Wing. West Wing. Let, let's come back. It's, it's one of my favorite shows as well. Oh, and uh, it's at least if, eight times if, the whole series. If, what does that say about me? If only there was a if there was a modern incarnation of that. But let's come back to the broader problem if we can, and that's fixing South Africa. And let's premise this conversation now on two things. One good advice, but the other is that word trust. So the question then is, why do you think we're unable to come together and fix the nation with more speed than it is happening, if it's happening at all? Do you think that divide of cooperation now is just simply too wide, that we can't breach it anymore? You see, I think we are completely able to fix this country. In fact, I would go so far as saying that we are busy fixing it, albeit slow. And, you know, the reason why I say we are totally able to do it is because we've done it many times. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people came together and broke down apartheid. We got the interim constitution against all odds. When Chris Hani was assassinated, something we just commemorated recently, all indicators were there that the country should fall apart. We didn't. The country pulled together. When it looked like the elections were going to be boycotted, it didn't, uh, you know, or was going to fall apart. It didn't because the country came together. And more recently, Cape Town's water crisis was a good example of people standing together. And then, of course, most importantly, the riots of two years ago, when it was 
ordinary people in South Africa, taxi drivers, people in the townships who said, "Ah, uh-uh, this is not going to work for us. So this has to stop. One cannot deny, I mean, one would be an idiot and live in some very isolated place to not acknowledge that we're in a very, very difficult space in South Africa and politically that there's been huge failures. And I want to say that, you know, between all the optimism I have is that people like myself, and there are many, many, many of us who came from the liberation movement and served in those early days in politics, are absolutely heartbroken about where we are and particularly what happened under the Zuma years. But yet, I think we are busy fixing. I think politics have taken, have turned a corner. Um, as frustrated as we are that it's not happening faster, there's definitely a completely different dynamic in politics now. And even the politicians are determined to fix things, albeit just in their self-interest to be re-elected, of course. So I'm not one of those people who want to say mm. that the Mandela years were just a little clipsy. I believe there's something fundamental in our society that will help us to keep on fixing whatever needs to be fixed. So, Melanie, for vote, I'm taking it then that you would believe there is a willing majority in South Africa who genuinely want to get things right, who want to fix things. But I wonder then why we always seem to take it to the brink. You reference the water crisis in Cape Town. Yes. You reference the uh, the riots in KwaZulu-Natal. We always get to a point, don't we? Then suddenly we've got to start fixing things. It says to me, and it's back to your original column, that there is bad advice up front and the people are not listening to it. Look, systemically, we have seen major breakdowns. I mean, it's obvious, right? Local governments are failing and struggling. We have seen major breakdowns in national government and provincial government. And that's caused, I mean, not the Cape Town water crisis, that was an environmental issue, but largely. But obviously the systems have broken down. And those are the things that needs to be fixed if we want to see prosperity and a country that functions well and delivers to its citizens. So, yes, I mean, politically, there have been major failures, major breakdowns, and that cannot be denied. But my point would be that we cannot sit around and just pass everything on to the politicians. So while we push consistently and people like myself and you and others who have access to politicians and, and the media, etc. while we will keep on pushing the politician, there is also a parallel uh, process that needs to happen with the citizens who must get together and fix the country. And just to get back to your, your point um, where you said everybody uh, or the vast majority wants this country to be fixed, I think everybody who wants to live here, they do want the country to be fixed. Of course, we need to acknowledge that when your daily life is all about survival, to get to work, to get back from work, to feed children. If you're every minute and every hour of your day and every ounce of energy goes into just survival, it's very difficult to then still have the capacity and a huge amount of South Africans live like that. The capacity then to actually still think about the bigger issues and try and fix the country. But of course, the middle classes and business, etc. there is a buffer, be it thinner and most probably now than it used to be. And there is capacity and and and. There's a big obligation on the middle classes, I think, um, and business in particular, to also say, how can we help and how can we contribute? I'd come back at you, Melanie, for Wood, and say that maybe that argument is a little naive because the middle class is angry. It's frustrated. Mm-hmm. It pushes as hard as it can, and it is simply rebuffed. 
how do you overcome that obstacle? So I'm not sure how we are rebuffed. I mean, there's been huge pressure on the middle classes, of course, on the tax, because that's where the tax base is. Mm. And that's just becoming harder and harder. And yes, we've had to pick up a lot of the slack in the middle classes. But let me say something about the anger and the negativity. So I think if there's one thing South Africans excel in, it is to talk ourselves down or in negative. Actually, I'll give you one example. When I was ambassador in Ireland, there was an investor that we worked on very hard for a long time. And eventually he agreed to come to South Africa. And we had organized a fantastic trip for this investor. And on the plane, he sat next to a South African. And by the time he landed in Cape Town, he turned around. He was not willing to leave the airport and flew straight back to mm. Ireland because this person had told him every possible negative story about South Africa. I speak a lot to international investors at the moment, and what they would often say to me, they know you know, that we're a developing country, they work in EMEA markets, they understand that there are challenges, you know, and they will make money on the up and the down. What they don't understand is why our own financial sector is so negative and is talking the country down. So that's what impacts on them more than, than the actual numbers and the actual figures. So that negativity is a big problem that we have. And I think we're almost in a collective depression at the moment in the country. Is the, so the, is the financial sector not just simply looking at the raw data and making an analytical interpretation of what is wrong and that's why they're negative? I guess that's what they would say. That what interests me is that international investors, when they look at the raw data, they are not as negative as our own guys are. You know, And of course, you know, when you live here, of course, you're more aware of things like how it feels, things like load shedding, et cetera, et cetera. But I think part of the problem that we're experiencing, and again, this is more in the middle class, and we've experienced this in particular since 1994, and I think it's been accelerating, is that we're seeing increasingly a privatization of our citizenship. So people go, you know, those who can afford it have kids go to private school, we live in private estates, we have private health care, et cetera. And then what happens, of course, what is mirrored back to you is only what you hear from people around you and those who live in similar circumstances. And then dinner table conversations becomes what not only dinner conversations, but that largely informs how we feel and how we react to the country. And for me, the only way you asked me about how to break through the anger and the negativity mm. is actually to do something, is to say, okay, let me open the gates of my estate, step outside, be brave, go boldly where very few go and see how can I help? You know, how can I make a difference here? I know it sounds naive, but it actually works. And even if it is just in your own little neighborhood, you know, to get involved certainly helps to break through the incredible negativity because you then get a sense of purpose. That, that's exactly the point that uh, Jay Naidu was making on our previous podcast, uh, calling for renewed citizen or citizenry and activism. So, you know, you, you, you do share the same philosophy as he's concerned. We're being a little theoretical here, Melanie. For mm. We're talking about fixing South Africa, but what do we need to fix? Is it crime? Is it corruption? Is it climate? Is it uh, power? Is it infrastructure? <laughs> uh, I've got a long list. Uh, where do you start? It's everything, isn't it? Mm. I mean, that's what I think uh, causes some of the paralysis sometimes is that the problem just feels so big. And, and I feel that sometimes, you know, when I sit down to write my weekly column, I go, oh, sweet Lord, you know, which of this list do I take? And I think here we need to distinguish between government and maybe even business and then private citizens. Government needs to fix it all. They, and we can have a whole discussion and I'll be a lot more sharp 
when it comes to what government should be doing. Cabinet needs to get their act in order. It's not acceptable what's been happening. And Ramaphosa needs to appoint better people into cabinet. Um, uh, we need to hold them much more strongly to uh, accountable for, for, for things that have gone wrong. So, so there's a whole story around government. I think, and then there's a story around business, which we maybe can address separately. In terms of ordinary citizens, there we can start small. Just address what's happening around you, what's happening around your household. And we've seen your household in your town and your community, um, even if it is just picking up rubbish, you know, in the streets and on the beach, it already starts to make a difference. We've seen so many beautiful examples of farmers, for example, who fix roads, who fix potholes, business who fix potholes, again, in the rural community, citizens pulling together to generate, you know, to make sure that there's water and so on. All of those little things add up. Ultimately, ordinary citizens can't address the big regulatory issues around climate change, nor can we fix the issues around ESCO. But we can, in our own separate ways, we can make a difference to improve the communities uh, that we live in. And, you know, even those of us who can afford solar is making a difference as much as it's mm. moans about the, the revenue disappearing. But we're making a difference. We're taking pressure off the grid. So there are many ways. And it's just starting where we are, looking out and saying that important question. There's one question I often get asked by people to advise them, and particularly business, on how to engage with government. And I always say the most important question that you can ever ask is, how can I help? And it's basically the only question you should ask. Um, don't come with arrogant advice or something. They won't listen to you. But if you ask, how can we help? And I think that's sort of, for me, where we are in this country is all, all of us can just consistently ask. How can I help? How can I, um, you know, assist? I think that that's where the big change will come. It's a fair point, but I have spoken to business leaders in the past who have uh, put up their hand and asked that exact question. How can I help? Mm. Often uh, they're ignored or they simply not listened to. Well, see, not listened to, that's usually because they give advice, you know, and, and politicians don't do well with that. And I'm not not saying that's acceptable. So change the tone, change the tone and dialogue. The tone is very, very important. You know, I think not to think, um, even though sometimes it might, part of it might be true, to think that business has all the answers because, you know, running a country and running a company is actually very different. But I think most importantly, when you ask, and I, I still work with politicians and, you know, I see it time and time again, if people come with the right attitude, when they come and they say, how can we assist you? What is it that you need? to do your job better, to be able to fix this problem very quickly. I mean, almost always politicians will respond to that. They might feel a little bit overwhelmed times and things get forgotten and so on. But certainly in the vast majority of times I have seen when you're truly eager to hear how you can help. The problem is what often happens is that people go to politicians and say, this is what I can do. This is what I want to do. And then that's not necessarily where the need specifically lies. And then when it doesn't go further, people feel that they're not heard or rejected with their idea. But I think if you really come with an open mind and saying, what do you need? You know, is it research? Is it information? Is it for us to implement certain things? They, sh you know, 
not always, but they should in most of the majority of cases, I think they will actually respond positively. You and if nothing else, it will improve the relationships between business and government. You also said it's more incumbent upon citizens to hold government accountable. That That's a very sweeping phrase. Given the divide that exists at the moment, often between citizenry and government, Apart from the ballot box, um, how do you accelerate or amplify that accountability that you're talking about? Oh, speaking to your elected representatives, it really works. Even if you just let them know that you're really annoyed, you know, about whatever. That's one thing. Write to them, talk to them, find out who they are. Um, so that's one way of doing it. Um, and then secondly, you know, on a more positive note is again to engage with them in a way because there should be a parliament, I mean, there is a parliamentarian for every area and working in every area. There often are a number of them from the various parties, especially when you talk about the cities. So it's to also then engage with them to say, how can we work together? I think sometimes we feel very disempowered as citizens and it is a bit more difficult, you know, because of our electoral system. Um, with the proportional system. But actually, you know, the way that it has worked since 1994 is that there are politicians around in your area and one should start engaging with them and see again what possibilities there are for collaboration. Part of fixing any problem, Melanie Favut, is making sure that we stay the course, given that so many Mm. obstacles come up all the time. Uh, Given that so many South Africans feel almost a fixed fatigue, How do you make sure that we stay resolute, that we do stay the course? We keep on doing it. I don't know another way. The other only way, I mean, all of us get tired. I would put myself right up there and say, man, there are times where I go, oh, um, you know, how much more, how long does this go on? And, And getting very frustrated and very exhausted by it all. But at the same time, what's the alternative? You know, the alternative is to give up. And that I'm not willing to do. I can live abroad if I want to at any time. I lived there for a very long time. I chose to come back after 12 years. My kids want to be here. I want to see a future for my grandchildren here. So what's the alternative? It's just to give up. So for me, it is just to keep at it. I will just keep fighting for this country because there is a lot here. There's, and, and I will keep on getting annoyed and having my annoyance heard when it when it's appropriate, and I will keep on trying to contribute. And I think acknowledging the exhaustion is is fair enough, but but we can't give up. What I'm also hearing is that it's okay to be angry and annoyed for Ooh. a lot of the time. Hey, I am more often than not pissed off mm. with politicians, and many of them are still friends. Um, and as you can see from my columns, I will let them in. They're not often very unhappy with me for, for writing some of the stuff. But of course, we would be very, well, you would have to be sleeping under a rock or living under a rock to not be annoyed at the moment. And like I said, you know, for people like myself, heartbroken and because it didn't need to yeah. be this way. It didn't. You know, we were on a good trajectory. Um, And if you, for example, will ask me, you know, if we had a clean slate, where would I start? I I would say I would start exactly where we were in 94. And I would say we would have to do exactly what we did in 94. The only thing we need to watch is much stronger controls in terms of corruption and have far better uh, ways of dealing with that quickly. That's the thing I would change because it was it was greed and it was, yeah, a very negative part of politics that took the got the upper hand. But for the rest, you know, I think we were in such a good trajectory and it didn't need to end up this way at all. 
you, you referenced grandchildren, and I want to get to that <laughs> in just a moment because we're coming to the end of the conversation. But uh, something that I always put uh, to our guests on this podcast is the old cliche that you can't manage anything if you can't measure it. I know it's corporate speak, but the reality is you've got to measure and chart progress if we're fixing things. So how would you define success? How would you chart process? What would be a, a couple of early wins for us? Maybe a good place to start is electricity. I don't know. Well, you know, I would first of all say, does the country stay stable in the sense of it doesn't go up increasingly into riots and unrest? Second one would be, can we still have fair and free elections next year? Um, you know, does our judiciary state remain independent? Does our media remain free? All of those very important. But then, of course, the things that's really hurting at the moment are the sort of basic needs that people have. Unemployment, do those figures start to get a bit better or do they just get worse? Electricity, we know we're still going to have load shedding for at least a year to 18 months, maybe two years. Yeah. But are they at least manageable? Is it is there literally night at the end of the tunnel? Do the health outcomes um, improve a little bit? Education, does that improve? So, you know, then you need to look at the basic indicators and say that they don't consistently get worse and worse. But then, of course, also the things that I keep on mentioning, for people to keep hope and to have confidence, I think it is very important that the, they can, the things that they can see on a daily basis, that that improves as well as these basic indicators like water, mm. electricity, sanitation, etc. You know, if you don't fix potholes, it really gets to people. If traffic lights don't work, it gets to people. This is why there's a very big, a different feel in Cape Town versus, for example, Johannesburg. You know, I can never understand when I'm in the center of South Africa's economy in Santa and traffic lights don't work and you drive through potholes. I know the businesses are now fixing it. But, you know, how they can think that business, international investors and general citizens will have confidence. You need to fix the things that people can see as well. And that usually is not a big deal. You know, fixing bottles, they should really just get that done and make sure that traffic lights work, that over street lighting works. You know, those things are also important together with the bigger issues that are the basic indicators. I guess as I'm talking to you, I'm also thinking it would be nice to rise a few notches in the global happiness index, but uh, <laughs> let's uh, let, let's pass on that one for just a moment. Melody, for what finally you, you reference children and grandchildren, and I always ask this question, as I said, when you're talking to younger people in 20 years' time, what will you tell them about the early 2020s? And in continuing to build South Africa, what then is their future role? We talk about the baton-holding generation. I have now a little grandson. Can you believe it? So, of course, those questions, I think about them a lot more. Sure. But if I was to talk to young people, even today, I mean, there's undeniably a question that we can't, uh, there's undeniably a fact <laughs> that we are, we're in a very bad space in the early 2020s, that this was not where we wanted to be, and that really we come to a crossroad as well. We really need this country now to go on the upward trajectories in order not to keep on deteriorating very rapidly. For me, in terms of young people, the issue remains that they have also, to a large extent, abdicated from the formal political process. And I think that is a big concern. We know that young people, especially in the under-25s, are not registering to vote. There's a small percentage. Even the under-35s is a very small percentage. And even of those that are registered, they don't come out on the day to vote. Very, very, very few do. So ultimately, when it comes to the formal political process, 
their voices are not heard. We hear them in protests, we hear them on campuses, but we're not hearing them in the formal political process. And I think that's a problem. And I think young people really need to start organizing and start getting involved and um, in order, because this is ultimately their future. You know, this is for them that we need to, to, to fix things in this yeah. country. And maybe they should uh, watch the West Wing. <laughs> oh, definitely. Melanie Favut, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of uh, Fix SA. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.